Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. What happened in those first years? What gave you confidence to continue before you were really making a living at it? You just know in your gut that this is what you're going to do. Like, I wanted to do it since I was a child, and then you get laughs, and that's it. You have no idea what awaits you. You don't know that you're going to be doing hell gigs. You don't know that you're not going to be having any success for a long time. You have no idea, but you're so overjoyed with doing stand-up. You're so happy that you're in New York City, going to clubs, getting on stage, making people laugh, working on yourself, learning it, doing it, just going. It's just pure bliss. There's a lot of hardship. You know, you're making $5 a night, and that's all the money you have. And there's a lot of things that you would perceive as negatives, but you really don't think about that. I didn't. You'll appreciate this. I was talking to Paul Reiser, who, of course, was in Red Oaks with along yeah. with you. Yeah. And he says, when you're starting out, there's almost like this womb around you to protect you from the fact that you might suck those first few years, <laughs> but you don't quite realize it until you're good. <laughs> yeah. So you okay for me to start? Go for it. I'm so excited to have stand-up comedian, radio host, book author, TV... I don't want to say you're a TV star, but you've been a TV host and a, you've, you've, host you've been on TV a billion times. Yeah. You've been in movies. There's True. nothing you haven't done. Tom Papa, author of the book that came out right now, Your Dad Stole My Rake and Other Family Dilemmas. Bravo. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. You know, I, I read the book. It's so funny. You know what it reminds me of? And I, and I know Jerry Seinfeld's been a huge influence on your career. Uh -huh. and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit, but this it really reminds me in style of sign language. Were you thinking oh, yeah? that when you wrote the book? No, I never read sign language, actually. <laughs> <laughs> You're kidding. <laughs> no. Well, sign language no. is basically, you know, each chapter sort of reminds you of something. It's all very smart observations about life, right. but it reminds you, oh, he could maybe use some of these observations in his act. Right, and I sort right. of feel like you're much more concise. You, you basically take the horror that is life and uh -huh. boil, down, boil it down to its daily necessities, <laughs> and then you're like an x-ray machine looking at the truth of every aspect of life. Parenting, you know, children, dating, being yeah. a husband, being a wife. Yeah, and I tried to break it all down by uh, each person that you have in your family. 
Yeah, and then, and then also each kind of activity you do. Uh-huh. So like like <laughs> romance, right? And 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 so I'm just so you so I, I, there's two directions we go. We just talk more about the book or talk about your career. Let, let's start off with the career, and then I'd love to, to sure. get into the book. Okay. But you you started doing stand up in 1993, yes. 25 years ago, June 12th, 1993. Yeah, and I, I, on Mark Maron's podcast, you mentioned also June 12th. It's like it stands in your mind. Oh, yeah. Like, why does it stand in your mind so much? It's, uh, you know, why would your wedding anniversary stand in your mind? It doesn't. Or, <laughs> <laughs> right, that one's actually a little fuzzy. I have to take a beat and think about that one. But I know June 12th, 1993. Like, what happened? Were you, like, terrified? What was what was going on? Like, you, you and I, by the way, we're the exact same age. Oh, yeah. We grew up in, the, in New Jersey. Oh, nice. Where so, were you? Uh, North Brunswick, New Jersey. Oh, yeah. You're like northern New Jersey somewhere. Yeah, Bergen County. Yeah. And uh, uh, so June 12th, 1993, you must yeah. have finished college a few years earlier. Exactly. And uh, I had acted in college, but I always wanted to be a comedian when I was a kid. And I was when I got out of school, I was auditioning. I went on a couple auditions and stuff. And I was like, this is hard. Like People have to hire me to do this thing. And I was looking at the Village Voice, and they had an ad in, uh, in the voice for the New York Comedy Club. And it said, uh, you know, like amateur night kind of thing. And, you know, if you bring a couple friends to sit in the audience, we'll put you on stage. And I I remember so clearly, like I went to my room, had the phone, called them. Like I was all nervous just to make the phone call was nerve wracking. Like, okay, hey, how are you? And, and they said, okay, we got a date in June 12th. Come on in, bring your three friends. And the uh, show starts at whatever time. And, uh, and that was it. I mean, it's almost like I remember the date from making the phone call even more than like when I went in. You know what well, I mean? Why like, do you think it it's so in. nerve-wracking? Like that that first time up and and all the activity around it. Like, like yeah. there, there are other things in life that should be much more nerve-wracking but aren't. Yeah. And yet people are terrified that moment before they go on stage. Well, it's also, it's a, it's, you know, there's a lot of things at play. It's not only is it standing up in front of a crowd of people with your jokes without a role, just you exposed as just you, and they're going to reject you or accept you. You've never done it before. I'd never been in a comedy club before. I'd but loved, you had been funny before. I'd been funny. I'd watched on television. I watched everything that I could possibly find, but I'd never physically walked into a comedy club before. So that's all nerve-wracking. But then also, with the perspective now that I didn't have then, was you're also stepping up and saying all right, this is, I'm going to put my dream to the test. Like if you grow up your whole life thinking I'm going to do this and then you show up and you have no aptitude for it and it goes horribly wrong, you're killing your dream. Like it really is a moment of truth right there. So you can see why it's so definitive. And I went up and luckily uh, it went well enough that uh, the dream was confirmed and then I just kept going. Because there were seven people in the audience, five of whom were your friends. Yes, they were all my people and like two other stragglers. And it was, uh, my friend Gary was up on stage uh, hosting and uh, Greg Giraldo was waiting in the wings. We were the only Greg... people, we were the only ones on the show. And uh, is Gary like a stand-up now? Yeah, Gary, I'm spacing on his last name. He's a writer at Kimmel. Uh, Gary, not Newman, Gary Gold something... He's very funny. He's bald, Jewish. He has a, a big nose that he would, he had these cards and they had pictures and with a, a, a hole for his nose. And he would put his nose through 
<laughs> the poster board. So it was like a picture of a baby with a little, <laughs> and then funny. he'd stick his nose through. And then there was like a, a rocket ship and then he'd put his nose through. Did you write jokes for that first appearance or did you just like say funny stuff? No, I wrote jokes. I wrote jokes and, uh, and the, it, it was a really a confirmation because the first joke that I really wrote that I believed in worked. And then... The, what was that joke? Uh, that joke was, um, at the time, it was... Uh, it's In schools now, You uh, they're handing out condoms. They're handing out condoms for free to school children. When I was in third grade, I needed three notes and a blood test just to get on the bookmobile. <laughs> But it's a joke, Funny. you know. It's not. Yeah. It's not killer, but it's. It's got structure. There's a little. It's there. It's a real joke, and they laughed. They laughed in the right place, and. Uh, but then I ran out of jokes, and then just kind of faked it for the last couple of minutes. You know, they gave you probably five minutes, and I was out within two. <laughs> and and you know, after that first stand-up appearance, you must have. I mean, we'll we'll skip around a little bit, but sure. I want to hear what happened in the years right after. But you went on to host. Uh, on TV, The Marriage Ref, which was the show created by Jerry Seinfeld. You toured with Jerry Seinfeld. Your first comedy special came out in 2005, and you've done several since then. You've been on movies like The Informant. Uh, you've been on a whole bunch of movies and TV shows. But after that first stand-up experience, and then the 12 years after, uh, you know, you, you, you were, again, touring and performing a lot, but it was 12 years before your first special came out. Mm -hmm. What happened in those first years? What gave you confidence to continue before you were really making a living at it. It was just, you just know in your gut that this is what you're going to do. Like I wanted to do it since I was a child and then you get laughs and there's another comedian, Greg Giraldo, who I just met and he's telling me I'm funny and he's funny and we can do this together and oh my God, we're doing it, let's go. And that's it. It really is just purely... Uh, you have no idea what waits for you, what awaits you. You just, you don't know that you're going to be doing hell gigs. You don't know that you're not going to be having any success for a long time. You have no idea, but you're so overjoyed with doing stand-up. You're so happy that you're in New York City, going to clubs, getting on stage, making people laugh, working on yourself, learning it, doing it, just going. It's just pure uh, bliss, there's a lot of hardship and there's, you know, you're making $5 a night and you really, that's all the money you have. And there's a lot of things that are, you would perceive as negatives, but you really don't think about that. I didn't. I just was so happy to be doing it that I say it's like jumping into like a raging river. I jumped in the river and there's no getting out of it. This is, this is what we wanted our whole life. We're headed to the sea. Let's go. You'll, you'll appreciate this. I was talking to, um, Paul Reiser, who, of course, was in Red Oaks with along yeah. with you. Yeah. And um, uh, he says, like, when you're starting out, there's almost like this womb around you to protect you from the fact that you might suck those first few years, <laughs> but you don't quite realize it until you're good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe. It's, uh, I had, I, I knew I could do it. Like, I knew I was funny. I was totally different. I was totally frightened. I was... I used to lunge like off to the side. I would go super fast. I had long hair and I, was, I would go really fast and wouldn't even stop for, uh, to hear the audience laugh or not, which, you know, it was just fear. You know, I and so, so, so that you would, it's what's called, you would step on their laughs. Like you would yeah, you, you I was just give them going. time to laugh. I, they got me 10 minutes and I'm just going to use every 10 minute and just go. And I, I thought it was just like about an energy thing just to 
get it as big as I possibly could and then get off the stage. But, you know, looking back, it's like, no, I wasn't confident enough to stand there, give a joke and let it rest. Yeah. See the judgment. So I was just going super fast. I remember Geraldo telling me, you know, you've got a one night I, I was at Stand Up New York and did a show and I froze in the middle of it. It's probably like a year or two in and just froze, like couldn't remember where I was going, couldn't remember what I was doing. It was uncomfortable ugh, and got off the stage. It was like a horrible and I'm outside just like, what was that? Like, what the hell happened? And I remember Geraldo coming up and saying, you know, you've got really good jokes. You don't have to do the whole like running around the stage, lunging, screaming thing. Like you're good enough. Like let the jokes be. And then I slowly brought it back and I realized like I froze because I was so manic and like I wasn't relaxed enough. But I mean, that's the whole. So you were It's like eight years of trying to become comfortable enough where I'm talking up there the way I'm talking to you now. It it takes that long. Like now it's I'm more natural there than I am right now. But in the beginning, it's a freaky situation. And it only there's, there's no shortcuts. There's no way around it. You have to go up and do it over and over and over and over again to the point where you are so confident that you can really truly be yourself. Well, like how many times, like in those first few years, how many times a week were you going up on stage? Not a lot. You know, those, I remember, I remember wishing, I remember saying, I, I wish I had an agent to book my open mics because you'd work so hard. Just tr your whole day was spent trying to find a gig and trying to find something. And I was living in New Jersey, so I wasn't, you know, just walking down the street to go to a club. Like I had to get a date and then come in and, uh, you know, it's funny, like you say, you know, you started in 93, it's 25 years of doing it. The first four years, <laughs> you're not up on stage very much. I remember like anytime a friend would visit and come into the city, uh, I would, uh, I'd feel bad if I didn't have a show. Cause I was like, I'm a comedian now I'm a comedian. And then they'd come in and like, it's a Friday night and you do, you don't have a show. Was, what, what were you doing for your full-time job? I was working, my mother had an advertising agency in New Jersey, in Northern New Jersey. So I was working there and I just worked there until I got enough money off gigs where I could, where it was equal. And then I jumped and then moved into the city. And so, so I sort of feel like now, and just, you know, judging from both your specials that I've seen and, and reading your book, correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like part of your process is, okay, let's put a very common relatable topic up at the top of the page like romance or parenting mm -hmm. or children and then find as many truthful or things about it that people might not expect uh -huh. you know for instance like you know you you mentioned at one point in your book you know women are always looking for a great guy to date and you point out probably correctly there are no great guys like yeah. i have two daughters i tell them yeah better for you to be lesbians like <laughs> all guys are crap yeah <laughs> and so yeah. so this is a truth yes. that most people don't really admit and it seems uh -huh. like your your book is like an x-ray machine on truth after truth after truth <laughs> so i'm just wondering if that's close to your process or how does how does your brain work when you're coming up with these ideas yeah i just um you know i i talk a lot about family it's it's kind of where i live and in my act i'll i'll, I'll venture further from just my family I'll go to the family of my community or the family of the culture, the family of the country and uh, what it is to be human. But at its heart, and this book is 
entirely is um, my family, my family and your family. I've been watching your family. I've been watching my family. I thought all that. The time. I thought I was wondering where that video camera was in my apartment. <laughs> yeah, that's that little blue light beeping. Is that was me? And uh, so I, I'm talking about a subject that a lot of people have spoken about, written about, in so many different ways. So I really see it, and but I love it, and I love all the intricacies of it, and I love all of the different ins and outs, and it's where I live, and it's where I feel comfortable, it's where I find my joy, it's it's where that's what I like. So it's my job then as a writer and a comedian to not be a hack about it, to not do the things that I've seen a thousand times before. So like, yeah. let, let, let's take as an example, like being a husband, what would be a hack observation as opposed to, you know, a more in-depth, you know, layered observation? Like it would be a little hacky. And by hacky, I mean, it's just been retread. Like people have all done it before. It'll still get a chuckle. It will still work, but you've, you're not the first one to come up with that thought. That's not a new thought, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's a little tricky coming off the top of my head. But a husband thing, you've heard a million times. Um, in the mall, the husband's the guy standing there with the standing there with the with the wife's handbag and just sitting on the bench while his wife shops. You know, we've seen that scenario a thousand times, and people have made little jokes about about all of that. My thing about being in the mall as a father and a husband that I write about in the book is I shouldn't be shopping with my 13-year-old daughter for clothes. I shouldn't be standing in Forever 21 waiting for my daughter to come out of the dressing room. No one there knows I have a daughter in the dressing room. They just see a sweaty, uncomfortable man breathing heavy by himself next to the bras and panties. Right? right? So that... I haven't heard that angle before. I haven't. I I feel like I kind of was able to take something that I did a little more work, worked a little harder than just stopped at the first idea, right? And so, right? so, and it's relatable because it's relatable. It's true. Yeah, it's something we we all deal with. You as a father. Yeah, I don't know how old they are, but you're nineteen going, and sixteen daughters. Yeah, so you've been there. You walk into a, you know a, a, a clothing store with your daughter in the mall, and immediately you know you shouldn't be there. So it's relatable, it's true, but it's something that we haven't um, dealt with before, you know? And so, I, think, I think that's the job. I think you have to just, I think that's the job of all of this, of, of any writing or creation of stuff. It's like, we've all been there before. Everybody's been talking about everything. Just work a little harder and make it as personal as you possibly can. Because there hasn't been a you before. There have been hosts, there have been comedians, a, a million of them, but you are are new. You are brand new. This is the first time anyone gets to see you. So I, that's your job then to convey whatever you have, because that's what's going to make you special. Well, what if like, you know, again, it seems like that going that extra layer though. Like, okay, everybody thinks, oh, the guy in the mall holding the handbag. How do wh what's What's going on in your head when you say, well, what's the very next layer of that? What's the next level of that? And I know this is tricky, maybe trying to break apart your Yeah, your well, process. it's not really like, let me start with a lame premise and go deeper. It's, let me tell you about what I deal with. I go shopping with my daughter. Every guy goes shopping with his daughter. Every guy goes shopping with his wife. What am I feeling? Why, do, why am I uncomfortable? Why does this feel weird? Why do I not want to do this? Why, what is happening inside me? And you're constantly picking it apart. You're like, is it, 
is it being with my kid and we don't know what to talk about? Does she not want to be with me? Do I not want to be with her? Is it just being around all this capitalism and all this stuff lying to us? Is it that I'm spending money I shouldn't be spending? What is it? What is bothering me about being in this thing, in this place with my daughter who I love, but now we're in a new situation and it's, I don't like it. And then I find myself standing there in pink with a wall full of panties. All right. Well, this is pretty clear what's making me uncomfortable right here. And then, you know, it's just something triggers and then you you turn it into something in your act. And it, it seems like, I mean, some comedians look at what makes them angry and they transform that into humor. Some comedians look at, like, let's say Seinfeld looks at what's weird in a situation and they turn that into humor. It feels like you're taking personal situations and what makes you feel either annoyed or uncomfortable and you turn that into humor. Yeah, I've I've heard Jerry actually say that like all comedy comes from hostility. Like that there is and it's 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 accurate. Like if something really gets you uh and it you know there's degrees of that. There's you know there's pure rage and there's minor annoyance, you know. But I think that that there is some key to that. There is some key to you know you you don't see a lot of acts that are, are enjoyable. I don't even know if they exist where someone's just talking about how great everything is. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think it was I think it was Carrie Fisher who wrote, um, no one wants to read about beautiful blonde people in mm-hmm. like a novel or a movie. So right. <laughs> right, exactly. Unless be, something but, happens to them. <laughs> right. It has to be some suffering or ugliness or pain or whatever. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's just being truthful. It's just I think that's the essence of it. It's, so so like after after four years, you're 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 going up. You know you want to be a comedian, but you're still going through the open mic phase. Uh, what was a was there any was there ever a point where you're like, oh, I just it's so disappointing to bomb. You know, on those occasions when you're going to bomb, yeah, it's so disappointing. Uh, did you ever feel like quitting? Like, what was a low point? I oh, I'm sorry, I never felt like quitting because I wasn't because I was bombing. Like I never felt like, uh, like I always felt like I was growing. I always felt like I was able to get better at it. The thing, the thing that gets challenging is when all of a sudden people that are your, who you started with or people that are around you or started just behind you start getting on late night shows or start getting success in some form and you're lagging behind. And it's that, that, that career frustration uh, is the thing you really have to wrestle with. It's like, why are they getting it, and am, am I not getting it? And and so, like, what specifically was happening? About like, it. like, who was getting it? I don't know. Like, there was. I remember there was a. I remember there was a Comedy Central had a special called uh, "Comedians in Bryant Park," which is a horrible idea. It's a horrible show. Doing comedy outside is a horrible endeavor for everyone involved. But it was a TV show, and a couple of my friends got on it. I don't remember which ones. I remember Kevin Brennan was on it. He'd started before me, but still, it was there were enough people that got it, and I didn't get it. And I was like, what do you mean I didn't get it? I'm the funniest one, right? And then you have to start dealing with, well, maybe I'm not, and maybe why don't they see it? And what's all of that stuff? That's, you know, that's a, a thing you have to wrestle and contend with to keep going. And I feel like that could happen in every industry. Like, sure. Let's say you're, 
I don't know, you're a sales guy for a company and other sales guys are getting the big yeah. deals and you feel like, oh, I'm just as good a salesman. Like, how do you wrestle with that? If you, because obviously, if you keep on improving and your peer group is also get improving, eventually you'll ride one way or the other with your peer group. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Some people never get it. Some people just fall off. They get a couple little shots and nothing really goes. You know, I said, uh, I remember Nick DiPaolo was uh, complaining about something like that about somebody getting something a tv show or something we're at the comedy cellar and i said nick you know i was trying to be the optimist and i was like nick you know that happens in every business someone who doesn't deserve it gets you know promoted to a higher position it just happens all the time and he said yeah but in those in those professions you don't have to see that guy's face on the side of a bus <laughs> <laughs> and funny. he had a point. Our our successes and failures are very public. And everyone else's, your peers' successes are in your face. They're in your comedy. They're in your movies. They're on the side of buses. They're on billboards in Times Square. So you have to deal with it. You have to find a way that it's not going to eat you up. And there's some people that are too sensitive and can't take that. And it will end up, you know, stopping them. So, so there's two things. One is how do you kind of buffer yourself against that sensitivity, and the other is um, how do you keep how do you keep going? How do you keep improving? Like, what what do you think at that critical point? Like, what do you think happened to you then? You have to uh, you have to keep working. You have to keep doing the work. You have to. You're never as good as you can be. So you have to realize that that's what really at its essence is the only thing that you can control is your writing and performing and how good you can get. That's it. That's really the only thing. You can maybe get a cool shirt, <laughs> change your haircut, but you really, at its heart, that's the one thing that you can control. Uh, so I got to a point where it was, I have to um, real. I learned that and was doing that and also put blinders on that I wasn't going to, it's kind of like when you can't look at Twitter anymore. Like you have to just stop caring about everybody else they're not they don't care about you and what you're you just have to this is your journey this is your thing do the work put blinders on and don't care about what other people are doing and you have to really not care truly and it may sometimes you can get to that place by not paying attention sometimes it's just isolating sometimes just doing your set and going back home and not hanging out whatever it is whatever you have to do at that moment depending on how low your self-esteem is or or uh, strong it is, you have to really completely realize that nobody else is here. And then you need confirmation. You need some crumb. You need something to keep you going at every stage. You need the club owner to say, hey, I'm putting you on the regular show. You need another comic to say, hey, I'm bringing you on the road with me. Hey, you know, you need those things. You need people to bring you up. And the biggest one for me was uh, when I met Seinfeld, for sure. When I met him and he said I was funny and he was hanging out with me and then eventually he said, come and open for me. Uh, it was just relief that, okay, at this time where I have had very little success, I know I'm good, but I'm, I haven't really, it's not panning out yet. This guy, this huge guy, this student of all things comedy says, no, you're good. You're, so, you're good. Keep going. You're good. So at that point, That's huge. you had or, you had passed at the Comedy Cellar. You were performing at the Comedy Cellar. He must have seen you there, I guess. Stand-up New York. 
at Stand Up New York? You're kidding. You know, he was just there last week performing. Yeah, he told me. So He told me he went in, there was no crowd. He went to the get a coffee with George Wallace. Yeah. Tweeted, I'm going to be there. And then it filled up and he had an audience. <laughs> I, I can't believe it because I got the call. Seinfeld's going to be here in 30 minutes. And I was out of town. And I just like, it was that night. It was Seinfeld, Judah Friedlander, Godfrey, and a couple others. And yeah. I just missed a, a great night. Yeah. But, and there was no crowd there. So he just tweeted and then you had a crowd. Yeah. Yeah. He filled it up. Yep. It's crazy. <laughs> so, so, so right before he, I mean, I could see why he would go for you because not that you have exactly the same style. Like I said, I think he looks at many aspects of life and finds the weird of them. Whereas mm -hmm. I think you stick to mo the more personal and mm -hmm. find, find the weird or the annoying or the uncomfortable in them. Uh -huh. Um, but it's kind of side by side. You go along with his style. It's clean. Yeah. It's um very audience friendly, regardless of the the audience. Uh -huh. You're not tearing apart the audience in any way. Yeah. Um. But yeah. right before then, do you feel like you had made some leap? Like some your voice and and your performance ability had kind of made this this leap, or or what yeah, do you think? Yeah. You start happened? to figure out like like I said about how there's no shortcut, and you have to just keep doing it until you're so confident that you're yourself. Uh, for me, that was about eight years in. Eight years in. Yeah, and I remember eight years it, is a long time. I remember, <laughs> and it might have been in my head that Attell had told me that David Attell had told me that about eight years is what he noticed for himself and for others. That that's about when you start to you be solid. You have enough confidence that your voice is clear, and you know how to write for you, and all those things start to mesh at eight years. And that was about right. That was that was a that was pretty accurate. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. 
okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? <laughs> Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. I see your specials and the first thing that comes across is you're very likable on stage. So you go out on the stage, it's a little bit of, you have a little bit of a smile. The audience is very happy to see you. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it was on your last special, you said something like, um, 
oh, you, you guys look like you've lost uh, 10 pounds. <laughs> and it was just this funny way of just opening up to an audience that already is, you know, predetermined to like you because they've bought tickets to your show. Right. And um, and right from there, you're able to, you know, you establish likability and you start telling your jokes. And it just felt very uh-huh. comfortable, like you're having a conversation with your friends. Right. When you were starting out, it wasn't, it probably wasn't like that. There's probably hints of it, you know. Because it's it, it's that is my personality, I guess. But uh, yeah, I now I know when I go up there, like I think the audience knows that that I'm in control. Back then, it, it was I, who knows who's in control. You well, know? What does that mean in control? Well, when I walk up on stage, like you know, you can watch a a new comic go on who gets up there and is like, you can tell they're a little shaky. They're looking for approval. I don't need their approval. So I'm in control. I know what I'm here to do. I know I'm going to make you laugh. I know pretty much how this is going to go. And it may be, you know, slightly better on some nights or slightly less, but I pretty much know how it's going to go because I'm in control of the situation. I'm going to dictate how this happens. And and again, I think that's something that's applicable to almost every industry, this notion of being in control of the situation and having the confidence to sort of control the environment around you what what do you think what do you think is that different that subtle difference that suddenly before you were not in control and then suddenly now you're in control and i know that's a little hazy question but no it's not a hazy question but it's also not just a flip it's not just a and then today you didn't have it yesterday and it's slowly 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 building up time on all that time on stage knowing what's going on having successes having done TV, having that gone well, all of a sudden you're turning into a different person. You're turning into a different performer. You've had confirmation. Your jokes are working. You're strong on the shows. It it evolves. It just slowly starts to happen. And and so let's say you go on a, on a, on a stage where nobody knows you in advance and and let's say their inclination, they don't like your first joke for some reason. So, so you're, you feel like that tension from the audience that something's, not, that something's a little bit off. Yep. And again, this is applicable to many situations in life. What would be, what would be your go-to technique or, or thought to say, okay, I need to kind of rein this in and, and bring it back on my side? Yeah, that's a hard question because it really depends on the moment because you, uh, sometimes you'll go slower Sometimes you'll take a pause. Sometimes you go a little faster. Sometimes you just go to the next joke. Sometimes you'll talk to someone in the front row. All of a sudden, he's talking to us. Like, what's he broke that wall, and now we're all alert. Uh, sometimes take the mic out and start moving around. Sometimes don't move it at all. Just look at him. Some, comment on the first joke. Comment that you're aware, as they're aware, that that didn't work. Who knows? you got to kind of be yourself and feel the energy of the room who is this crowd? Is this are they really hot and just missed it? Are they really is it really hot temperature wise in here and they're sitting there like dish rags and it's going to be a lot of work to get them going? It's it's difficult, but you've been in that situation so many times that you'll you have enough tricks in your bag that you'll uh you'll you can try a bunch of things. Right, you've probably also seen other comics in that situation many times, so you have not only your own experience but seeing live other com- your friends yeah. go through that experience as well and how they deal with it. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because like, even to this day, you know, I did four sets at the cellar on Saturday or Friday. And uh, 
three were great and one was lame. Tell, tell me about that one. Because here you have been doing it 25 years and you're telling me, oh yeah, I had a lame set. Yeah, it was lame. <laughs> Saturday. It was lame on Saturday. The first three were great. I had so much fun and uh, I was just, it was a blast and it was just awesome. And that uh, that last one, I hadn't done four sets in a single night in a while. So maybe I was tired. I'd done some filming during the day. So I definitely was a little tired. But uh, I don't have a real answer for you why it didn't go well, but it was work. That's the difference. I'll get through it. The audience thinks that was a good set, but I know that it's work. And what's so much fun and funny when you're on stage or when your friend is on stage, you know what's going on. Like they know I'm working. Like, because all of a sudden I, the thing I was closed, I just closed with 20 minutes before. <laughs> and in the other show, I just hit it and it didn't go anywhere and I can't get off. And now I'm going on to the next one, you know, like it just becomes work. Do you I, feel fear at that moment? <laughs> not fear. It's just like, oh, come on. This is my last set. Just go with it. Then you start seeing your friends and you in those situations paraphrase a joke. You ever have that where you're not saying it word for word like you uh, normally do? You're just, you start like kind of talking around it because you're thinking the whole time. You're, as the joke's coming out of your mouth, you're like, what is it? Is it hot in here? Where are these people from? What's that guy? Or did they just drop the checks? What's happening? What, it's, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot going on. And uh, you can't really pin down exactly why it was lame, but the energy was just lame. And uh, do do is it possible you resort? Did you leave? So Seinfeld has said, whenever it's not working, just fall back on your material, and eventually it'll work out. And I think that works if you if you're doing like an hour, when because you, you have time to win back the audience. Yeah. But like when you were doing these four sets at the comedy cellar, I imagine those are like fifteen minute sets. Yeah. So you don't have enough time really to win back the the audience. You do. I think you do. Huh. I think in fifteen minutes you do. I think. Uh, I think. I never heard him say that, but I but I do that. Like your material is the thing. It's like I could comment on what's wrong with you guys. Is it me? you know you you could express the things that you're secretly thinking in your head, or you can just stick to the jokes and see if the, that'll pull them out. The, the, if you have material and you know it's proven material, it's the greatest weapon you have. It's all you have, really. It's so might as well just stick to it and use it. And you can turn them. You know, I mean, uh. You know, set on Colbert is five minutes. So you're talking about three Colbert's. <laughs> like, that's enough time. Yeah, you know, I always, I'm always intrigued by that too. Like, so Colbert, Conan, all these shows. So you've been on, uh, you were on Jay Leno 13 times. I don't know how many times you've been on Conan and Colbert and all these other late night shows, but a billion times basically. Mm -hmm. And you're doing five minutes and you have five minutes to just kill it and, 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 and do your best material. Yeah. Then at the clubs, you have to expand it out three times as large, 15 minutes. And mm -hmm. then in your specials, you're doing it for an hour. Yeah. And what's what, what's the difference? This, this is kind of getting into the weeds of comedy, but what's, yeah. what's the differences? Because you have to build a much more rapport with the audience for an hour. I think the difference is that you're boiling it down. It's at its purest form in five minutes. You've really taken all of the fat out and you've got right, maybe 14 jokes that you're going to go through in that time. And then when you're doing 15 at Stand Up New York, that same set will have other jokes and other tags within it, so it's getting a little fatter. You're having stuff that didn't make it to Colbert because they're funny, but they weren't all they weren't as crystal clear as those other things. Like 
I always say that comedy is like poetry in that you are saying you're having the most impact with the fewest amount of words. That's what poetry is to me. Like you boiled it all the way down and in one line you can say so much. And I think comedy at its best is that. And when you're going and you have to do a tight set, five minute set, that's when you're putting that on display. And then a 15 minute set say is a short story and an hour long set is a novel, right? Like you can say the same thing that you're saying in that novel in this concise time. That's what doing Colbert is. And you're doing your special, you're taking the power of that Colbert thing and you have more breadth. You're able to, you know, say more, take your time, do different things, but you're still, you're dealing with the same form, but different, uh, different, um, uh, alcohol levels. (laughs) So, so, so after eight years or whenever it was, you you meet Seinfeld or you, you, he'd been watching you all along and it's almost like he comes down and blesses you from <laughs> up high yeah. and says, tour with me. And then your whole career changes or, or it, must, <laughs> it must have felt like that. Yeah, because, you know, once, because once, one, it was, the biggest part was learning from him, being friends with him, learning how to carry yourself as a comedian, as a person in this business that, you know, you don't have to be, drinking and smoking and doing all this stuff. You can just be a normal person and do your work. And I learned all of that, like how to be a person, a human being in this industry, how to be a good comic. I absorbed from him. Like what What do you mean? Like what did you absorb? Uh, the work ethic more than anything. The, just the work ethic. You know, you see when you're starting out, you know, you see certain people who just write on stage or some people have never written their thing down. And I always liked to write. I always wrote. And there's not a lot of people that, that were doing it that way. So then to have him uh, be a proven performer who actually worked the way I wanted to work, that was confirmation that I was doing the right thing. How did you know he was doing that? Would he... Oh, we talk about it. All he talks about is comedy. Just He loves talking about it, you know, and was and is always interested in how other people are doing it. What are you doing and how do you do it? And, and so what did he say to you? No, 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 you're doing it. I think you're doing it wrong. No, no. He's a guy, you know, he, he, Seinfeld. He just came off the biggest show in the world. And, you know, he's a giant comedian that I've watched since I was a child. And, you know, you don't, he doesn't have to say much. He just has to be and you just are taking his example. And, and you know, you take from everybody. You know, you learn any lesson you can learn from anybody. You know, how this person performs, how Chappelle does something or how Eddie Izzard did something or... You know, all these different things. But to have someone so close that I'm sitting across the table with having conversations night after night and be Jerry, you know, that's, you, you, you're a fool to not try and learn as much as possible. Like what are some of the key things that, that you learned? So there's the writing. You know what else? You know what the, a big thing is? Uh, he really gives you pride in being a comedian. He really believes that it is the best uh, profession in show business that it is so rewarding, that you're so lucky to be able to do it, that you get to write and produce and perform all by yourself without any other people. You're not acting. You're not taking other people's words. You're not sitting in a trailer. He gives you such pride in what it is to be a comedian. He, like every, I say it's like going to the comedy chiropractor. You sit down with him. You can feel a little funky about, you know, what's happening with my act or my job or whatever. And then you sit with him and you just talk about it and you're like, oh, it's just good to be a comic. <laughs> he just 
kind of corrects your head. Yeah, because to some extent, I sort of feel like being a comedian is like a modern-day philosopher because, you know, if you want to just, if somebody wants to just laugh, mm-hmm. they, there's plenty of videos, there's millions of videos on YouTube of, like, cats doing stupid things yeah. that make people laugh. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is a dumb question, but what's the difference between stand-up comedy and cat videos on YouTube? You could laugh at both, <laughs> but stand-up comedy, there's some something somehow more meaningful. Yeah, well, you're dealing with language. You know, you're dealing with you're dealing with language. You're dealing with insight. You're dealing with uh, it's a relationship. We're having a you know we're having this conversation now, and if you can weave things in that we both agree on, it has more depth to it. You know, no cat can do that. <laughs> so far, yeah, it's, it's, like it's probably cat, coming. <laughs> yeah, cats with chips. So so you tour with Seinfeld, and then the next thing is he's planning the show, The Marriage Ref. He asks you to host that. Mm-hmm. Was that that must have been off of his experience working with you? Yeah, and he saw your work ethic. Yeah, and then what happened? What what, what was some of your experiences from that show? Uh, it was really fun. It didn't really know what it wanted to be. There was a lot of moving parts. It was supposed to be just like this little Sunday night show that about couples arguing, and then it got a little too much attention. It, it because Leno's, of Seinfeld's name probably. Yeah, and Leno's show crapped out at 10 o'clock and they needed to fill all these 10 o'clock slots all through the week and they convinced Jerry to have uh, have it be Seinfeld back on Thursday nights, which, you know, sounds pretty great. But then, they, they, you know, as networks do, they promoted the hell out of it like it was the return of Seinfeld, the show. And then everyone saw this weird show with, like, you know, all these moving parts, part game show, part talk show, part whatever, and... They uh they were like no NBC you're not gonna force feed us this if people were allowed to just discover it on their own it would have uh, had more legs I think um but it was it was a great it was a you know it was the most um the most recognition I'd ever gotten you know to be on that kind of a show is so powerful so many people see you and it was definitely a great experience for two seasons. And you must have gotten some some hate during the process. Like you, I'm sure you got some love and you got some hate. Like any anybody on TV. Yeah, I didn't get too much. You know, it was I was almost like he so he was so big that any criticism was coming right at him, which mm. was kind of unfortunate because he didn't want to be the face of it. But then the network, I wasn't. They would do ads for the marriage ref, and they'd show Jerry, and then they would show just the host's hands at the end, <laughs> <laughs> and my wife would be so pissed off. Like, why aren't they even showing you? And, uh, and you know, when they, when the critics came out and were saying negative things about it, they weren't really going after the hands <laughs> of the host. They were going after the hands their, really don't belong yeah, there. Yeah. So in a way I didn't, I didn't come out of that show having been hurt critically, which was a, kind of a blessing, but you know, they should have just, they should have, it should have been on me and he shouldn't have had to do it, but. It's so, t- you know, when you're that big, it's how is the network not going to beg to have him be the face of it? I and, But I feel though like TV is a difficult medium in the sense that you could have everything behind you. Like it's Jerry Seinfeld's name, it's NBC, oh, yeah. you know, and it's still canceled. And you've had other attempts at like doing sitcoms and yeah. so on. And just what's, do you ever... I, I guess I'm looking for time. You don't seem like a very unhappy guy. You seem right. like a generally happy guy. <laughs> I'm looking for a moment where you were like, oh, I really thought that was going to happen, but it just didn't. Yeah, uh, there's a ton of those moments. Your, your career is filled with those moments. There's there's a couple people that hit it big and hit it fast, and then they don't have to really worry. 
And uh, but even then, they have you know failures later on, but they've already made it, so maybe it's different. But most of the stories in sh- in show business are a lot of disappointments. It's a lot of you know. Remember, like Paul Newman said something like, "You have to be like a weed." Because they're going to pull you out and they're going to toss you aside. And then you just have to be resilient and grow back. Just keep growing back. And I think most people are not resilient to handle that. No, it's a lot. It takes a lot. You have to, you know, I'm lucky that I'm genetically optimistic person. I think that really is a a blessing because, you know, I've had canceled TV shows. I've had pilots produced by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck that didn't even get on the air. I've had... Like why things, would that be? Like, like how knows? do the producers know more than? It's not even the. It's not. Sometimes it's not even. You make something that's really funny and really good, and that year, the network decides we're not picking up any new shows. We're gonna go with all our lineup anyway. We're we're not gonna make. We're not doing it. You, there's there's people you don't even meet in the process that are making the ultimate decisions. You don't. You have no idea. It could be a guy from um, Quaker Oats that doesn't like. You know, the my co-host. You have no idea, and he's an advertiser of the the Monday Night Comedy Block. You have no clue. You really don't. That kind of is freeing and gives you the ability to keep going because you realize mm. you do your stuff, and you got to get lucky in TV and film. You got to. There's certain things have to happen where it just you get lucky. You really have to get lucky because a lot of people are making a lot of good stuff and it doesn't go. So you really need to get lucky. And the one thing I think that we have an advantage of, rather than an actor who's been waiting their whole life for this role and they get into it and they don't, you know, they cancel the pilot and he goes back to his apartment and has to try and get another gig, we get to just go do stand-up that night. When they canceled my first thing at NBC, I had a, a, my very first sitcom, went for four episodes. Uh, they changed presidents of the network we were the hot thing, and then we were this new guy didn't like it. They burned it off in the summer, and it was hard. It was definitely difficult to be like, "Oh man, we had it. We're right here. Like we're so close." And at this last minute, the president of the network leaves, and a new guy comes. No one, you couldn't plan for that in all your writing meetings and casting meetings and wardrobe, and you can't plan for some new president's going to come in and not like what the old guy did. You cannot plan for that. So it gets canceled. That could be devastating. But within two weeks of me getting canceled, I'm driving my little Saab convertible onto the NBC lot, parking, getting my pass, walking onto the Tonight Show set, and doing stand-up. And that's when I realized they can't really touch you if you're a comedian. You really can control your career. I can't control television. I can't control you know, the film. I can't control that stuff. But I do have this one little part of show business that I can control. Right, because you couldn't, for instance, go on the road. And yeah. it's a lot of money on the road. If you're filling up... If you have fans and you keep working and you have people that want to come see you, you can work forever. How have you built up... Have you, how have you spent the years building up a fan base so you know you can go to, I don't know, Denver, Colorado and fill up a room? Um, it's just a cumulative, you know, it's a cumulative effect of, of everything. You're going to that town, you're doing stand-up, you're being on the radio, them seeing you in a show, you pop up in a movie, they read an article, 
you're tweeting, you're doing Instagram, it's all exhausting. But, <laughs> but you know, over a certain amount of time, and there's still markets that don't know me. Like, I can go into some market and be like, oof, I've never performed here before. Apparently, uh, they don't remember uh, the marriage ref or whatever it shows. I've also been in the informant with Matt Damon. You've been <laughs> yeah. in a bunch of movies. Yeah, there's a lot of, but, you know, this is the first time I'm rolling into St. Louis. <laughs> and then they may not, it may be tough to sell. I don't know. You know, I mean, it's a you, big country. There's, you, you're not going to, Kevin Hart can sell everywhere. The rest of us all have to hustle. Like you're, you're a big tier one comedian and you've been in a ton of stuff, but do you walk down the street and have people recognize you or? Yeah, they do. Not, not enough. <laughs> I would like it to be more often in front of more of my friends and family, <laughs> but it does happen. You know, it, it happens it happens enough where I feel like, okay, this is good. You know, like you can really, it's kind of like uh, my wife will like tease me because, um, you know, if, if somebody comes up or something and uh, I said, but you know, it's a re- it kind of is a real barometer of whether or not people are talking about you and know about you. You know, the more people are coming up and talking to you, you know, that means you're probably going to uh, sell more tickets that year. <laughs> do, <laughs> you do, know? You, do you ever feel the need to be, like more um almost controversial so like again when you go when you go like in your book and often when you're on stage uh you're talking a lot about these truths that everyone could relate to oh yeah that's what it really is like to be a husband or a wife Mm -hmm. or to be in a romantic relationship or to be a parent or a child or whatever so that so there's there's this enormous sense of relatability in in your work um but you take someone like Dave Chappelle, he'll go right into the whole transgender thing and Trump and, yeah. you know, all this stuff that's, you know, people are going to ask questions. Right. And, and <laughs> yeah. you ever feel like, oh, I should I should talk to, about transgender more? Or... <laughs> no, I feel like, uh, I think I just know myself pretty well. When I was younger, I would try and, like, talk about different things, you know, that maybe, it just doesn't fit me very well. I'm not as good at that as as certain other like Bill Maher is better talking about politics than I am so let him deal with that Bill Maher can't talk about family life he can't talk about what it means to be with you know your kids or your grandmother it's not his wheelhouse I I without sounding arrogant I'm better at that than he is he's better than at talking about politics than I am so it's like, why would I try and become that guy? You know what I mean? Like, it would be weird. My fans would be like, why is Tom smoking a cigarette and leaning <laughs> against the back wall talking about uh, the Israel-Palestinian issue? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, well, well, it's, I, it's, I, don't, I don't live there. I don't write that. I don't, it's not really my thing. I, I think a and, lot and, of- You know, it's, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah, but okay. just because it's on my mind. Jim Gaffigan put out a tweet last night about my book coming out as a friend. He was just yeah. plugging it. And uh, I was reading some of the comments on it. And one guy said, people were like, yeah, that's great. That, thanks, whatever. And one person said, I used to like Tom until he turned political. <laughs> uh, just stay you, Jim. And I was like, when did that happen? Like, I didn't even know like what he was talking about. Like, when did I become political? I never even get close to talking about it. People, though, are so divided that they'll try to smell political in yes, anything. Yes, that's So there true. could be like one thing you said and they were like, yeah. that guy's for Trump or that guy's <laughs> yeah, for no. Hillary. Yeah, you're right. Even though they have no idea. No, I did this. I was promoting something and I was on, in this one day, I was on Opie and Anthony on the radio. So now you're for Trump. 
So <laughs> no, there I was liberal. Okay. There I was really liberal because I wasn't going with what they were saying. And then I went on Larry Wilmore uh, when he had his show. And I was, I said something about someone who was complaining about something. And I said like something like they should just work hard and keep going. And they said I was for Trump. <laughs> so like in one day, just with these pretty much towing the line and not trying to be too controversial, I had come out as being really liberal and really extreme right <laughs> within, you know, six hours. Well, and people are, because they're sort of shielded by this anonymous barrier of the internet, yeah. people will lash out and be as angry as possible. Like, like it almost feels like yeah. at heart, the basic human is angry. Like, like <laughs> yeah. Chappelle, when he does a Saturday Night Live monologue, he, 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 all he said was like, hey, look, we've got to give this guy a chance because, yeah. <laughs> because we want a chance. Like he's trying to be as diplomatic yeah. as possible. And they're, they destroyed him. His wife <laughs> called him the next day. What did you do? And he got <laughs> nervous that what did she find out? And yeah. you know, you get nobody does anything, and yet you get crucified. Yeah, it's a weird time. It's like the we've taken these two the two extreme sides, and it's kind of bled in where people who weren't so extreme are like being caught in the tide of each one of them. So 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 let's take that almost as a concept. Not not that I'm putting you on the spot, but I am a little bit. So the idea that the basic human now is supposed to be political, or yeah. else or else you don't care. Like right. if you're not political, people yeah. think you don't care, and that's bad. Right? I, I, they've never thought that way before. Like you could be not political. You could just like wa like watching Netflix, and people wouldn't care. Yeah. Now, if you're not political, you're bad. Yeah. I think that uh, what, what would you do I think with this? people know who you are. I think people know the essence of you when you're on stage. I think when people when I come on stage and do my act, I don't have to talk about where I stand politically. And by the end of my act, you kind of know where I lean without even mentioning it. I could gather from you about where your political leanings are. I can get that from you. And and then through your conversation, you'll probably um, uh, confirm or uh, or change my opinion on those things. I but I can get the essence from you. But how that you I choose in my act to make my act a different thing, that doesn't make you uh, not caring. You know what I mean? Right. But but let's say you weren't going to be political, but you were going to comment on the fact that everybody expects you to be political. How would you? How would that fit into what would your process be of turning that concept into a joke? Of turning what? Into the, the idea that people now more than ever expect you to be political. They want to know. Right. They want to get their claws in you one way or the other. <laughs> right. Let's say you're going to take that concept and make it into a joke. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the one thing I do talk about when I'm doing a longer set is uh, uh, don't watch so much news that we are very lucky human beings, first generation that doesn't have to fight for survival. But you're also the first generation that's being inundated with propaganda 24 hours a day. And it's up to you to be smart about that and don't be played. Don't be manipulated. By, you get your little news and then you go about your life and about the stuff that's really important to you. You have, you know, we can't fight ISIS. We've got stuff to do. You've got a podcast to make. So, I, so that's almost the punchline a little bit. You can't fight ISIS. Right. You got a podcast to do. Yeah, you've got a podcast to do. I, you know, you, you people get in office. You like them or you don't like them. They do the job. If they don't do the job, we put someone else in there. That's their job. 
So, so this is in the weeds a little bit, but what makes a punchline? Like what made that line stand out above the others? Like you said, we have stuff to do. That's not a punchline. You said, uh, we can't fight ISIS. You have a podcast to do. That feels a little more like a punchline. Because you weren't expecting it, hmm. right? And there's a little bit of kind of uh, almost like an ex- extremes. Like there's in specificity, there's ISIS and a podcast. <laughs> yeah, maybe. So Yeah, maybe. It's just, uh, yeah, and you're not expecting it, you know? It should be about new thoughts and new, you know, it should be funny things that, you know, you can, we can all think about don't watch so much news. We can all think about we have to watch this more than ever. We've all thought that already, but you probably haven't heard you can't fight ISIS, you have a podcast to do, (laughs) right? So it's, it's funny words. It's a funny juxtaposition and you weren't expecting it. Yeah, yeah. You weren't expecting it's an interesting. Yeah. Well, Well, let me ask you this. Your wife you talked so many things about how guys are not great at best. They're good. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there's all these things about the difference between romance and then the transition that happens when you're an actual husband. Uh-huh. Like now you have to go to art galleries. Right. <laughs> you know, now you have to like, you know, clean the lawn, you know, whatever. Think about kids. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, and then you also on the road a lot. Like how does your wife... How does a relationship work in the context of you kind of telling all these truths about the reality of a of a situation? Uh, You're no yeah. longer hiding. Every every other husband is hiding stuff. <laughs> yeah, it it kind of ebbs and flows. Some it depends on what she's feeling, who she's with. You know, if it's some like a newer friend that doesn't understand what comedy really is. There's been times when people would say stuff and say, "I can't believe he said that about you," and she would feel bad, like. A couple of times she has asked me, you know, you know, not to check myself, but to, you know, she would say that she's not happy with uh, having to tell these people that, you know, defend herself or whatever. And, you know, those people are idiots. They don't know. This is comedy. It's all exaggeration. There's some things that are start off in truth, but they're all blown up. You know, they're all blown up for effect and... You know, they're they're extreme things. And, you know, this is, it's just the way it is. Do you ever get a heckler who says, you can't say that about your wife or? No. No, because I'm not mean about it. I'm not mean to her. I don't, you know, I'm not like, I'm not like one of those guys that's like, you know, screw, screw all of, screw marriage and screw this and screw her. And, you know, I'm just talking about the realities of it. You know, like when you're, uh, start a relationship it's built on romance romance is the thing that i met her and she met me and there's this chemistry and it's very real and that's what gets you in the game it's just romance and then after you know 15 years and car payments and dead relatives and dead pets there's no time for romance you ultimately become business partners in a horrible nonprofit organization <laughs> okay that's a punchline which i didn't expect right profit corporation and it's true it's not hurtful to her it's just the reality of what it is to be married, you know? And if we can't laugh at it, then if she can't laugh at it, then we're really in trouble. We're the people who understand that the most, that so, laughing so, at all this stuff is the best way to survive it all. So let me let me ask you advice. Uh, when you're at that 15-year point and right? you've gone from romance to nonprofit corporation, yeah. how do you keep the romance going? Uh, how do you keep the marriage going? Just as going? a marriage? I, you know, I think going on the road doesn't hurt. I think when, <laughs> I think when you when you travel and come back home, I think that's probably doubles the the potency of the good part of your marriage. 
You know, it really is. I think it's good. I think if you're there all the time, I think uh, you might get on each other's nerves a little bit more. I don't go on the road that much. I'm in a, in a run right now, but for the most part, I try and be home as much as I can. But, what, but what I do, you... do go out. And even if it's just for two days and then you come back, it keeps it fresh. You, you look forward to seeing it. You're happy to leave and you're happy to come back. What, what, do you, what do you make most of your living from? Is it from kind of going on the road every now and then? Is it from... Yeah, I never wanted to make it purely that it had to come from the road or else I'd be trapped on the road. So it was always... You know, right now, I, I essentially have five different jobs right now where I'm uh, promoting this book. So I've got, the, I've got the book. I've got my Come to Papa podcast and live shows I do every month. I've got Live From Here, which is Prairie Home Companion. Oh, yeah, Companion, I forgot where, to mention that, but Live From Here, yeah, your, your I, radio show. Yeah, I, I took, I'm the head writer for that show, so that's three jobs. Then I've got my stand-up tour, and that's four jobs, is just being a pure comedian. And now I have this new show coming out on the Food Network all about um, baking and off of my bread hobby. So I've got five jobs right now that are taking me all over the place. So... Uh, the money, I'm trying to think of which, Come to Papa definitely pays the least. <laughs> that one doesn't make any money at all, but I love doing it. The other ones, you know, it's a combination of all of them. I probably make more money doing as a stand-up comedian than anything else. But uh, but you can see from those, I have five different jobs, four separate from stand-up. And I've always tried to keep that kind of a thing going because I don't want to be just purely have to, feed my children by going to Cleveland to play in a comedy club. Yeah, because I always say to people, invest in yourself, but it doesn't mean invest in just one thing. You kind of have to diversify that investment. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think for a stand-up, it's possible to do that as yeah. opposed to acting. When you act, you're in one thing yeah. for a certain amount of time. With stand-up, you can act, you can do stand-up, you can do a podcast, you can do a serious show, you can write yeah. a book, and you have many opportunities. Yeah, and but I do think that all those things, if you can make them lucrative, that's great. But... For me, the whole reason of doing those other four jobs ultimately is so more people will come see me do my stand-up. Hmm. Like if I can, the more popular I am, the more I can tour on my own terms. I can pick the places I want to go for how long I want to go. That's like the sweet spot. Well, uh, Tom Papa, stand-up comedian. I encourage people to to watch all your specials, listen to your radio show, and most importantly, I really enjoyed your book. Your dad stole my rake. It's exciting. It's a big. That's the first book I've ever put out. So to know that people are like reading it and it's being well received is a uh, is a is a relief, frankly. I I can't believe you haven't read sign language. Have you really not read? No, sign language I never Jason? read it because it really read is it. in that genre. And have you read? But is it all about family? Was it all? No, no, no. But it's 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 vignettes. It's not structured the way yours is around family and personal right. experiences. But it's. It's it's his. I feel it's his type of act uh -huh. in book form. Oh, that's Whereas cool. yours is your type of act, not completely, yeah, but yeah. Your, how you would write it as a book, and right. and just like Jim Gaffigan's food, yeah. or Dad is fat, yeah, you know, uh, is 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 like his type of act in in book form. Is that genre, right? Right. As opposed to like I don't know, um, you know. Other comedians like, like Norm Macdonald, who did like a novel. Yeah, or other guys write memoirs and right, stuff, right. which wouldn't be a bad idea for your second book. Yeah, I, would, yeah. I would read that. Particularly <laughs> if there's all sorts of mentions of stand up New York. Yeah. So um, does Lenny Marcus ever play stand up New York? All the time. 
if he grew in a, a, a big bushy afro, you might look like brothers. <laughs> <laughs> it is Lenny Marcus. I mean, Amy Schumer. You, you've been on Inside. You don't Amy look Schumer. like her at all. No, I don't look like her. But she was doing. She did it before her SNL monologue, and of course, Seinfeld was there the other day. George Wallace does it all the time. Oh, that's cool. So, you know what's so great about Stand Up New York is that uh, literally, I mean, I started there, you know, twenty five years ago, and uh, you walk into that place, the certain things of the structure are the same, but you know, the room shifted, it's been redesigned, whatever the smell, the smell of the hallways, the smell of going down the stairs, the smell of the showroom is exactly the same. Exactly. The is same. that a not bad foul, thing or a good, a good thing? thing <laughs> not a bad thing. It just has that very distinct. It's like going to a friend's house that always smelled that way. Going into stand-up New York, I'm telling you, it just, and you know, sense of smell is really uh, spurs memory. And that place, as soon as I hit it, I can see every waitress that was there when I started. You should <laughs> you should come back this week and, and perform. I wish I had the time. I will. I'll do it at the end of June. I'll be there in the end of June. All right, let when me I know. And uh, we'll do something. We'll make you like a headliner. We'll do a special format. Yeah, that'd be great. So, I'll so, do it. And we'll, we'll do we'll do kind of a deal. Yeah, for I just sure. Wanna, I always want to ask you one more question, sure. which is, did you really write the first review of your book? <laughs> yeah, on Amazon. Yeah, so you so you so you wrote uh it's from Tom P. Yeah. Uh you wrote five stars. Yes. I love it, but I wrote it, but I still love it. I hope you do too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my review. Cuz uh nobody had reviewed it yet. <laughs> Well, I'm going to write a review as well. Oh, so, thank you. I appreciate that. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, this is uh, great. Your Dad Stole My Rake and Other Family Dilemmas by Tom Papa. I hope everybody buys it. And it's, it's a it's a really funny book. And it, and it does tell these truths. So you could steal all these jokes for your family occasions. And yes, take them all. Yours. <laughs> yeah, give it to your dad for Father's Day and claim that you wrote it. Exactly. <laughs> thanks, Tom. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.